0: Good afternoon, and welcome to Calvary's Way, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gibb Allen. Today, as we continue our study of the book of Acts, we come to chapter 2, verse 16. Once again, as you get your Bibles, the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 16. Last time we began to look at Peter's sermon to the multitudes on the day of Pentecost. We will continue to look at his powerful teaching as we resume our study in Acts chapter 2, verse 16. Peter's message here is first of all addressed to their question in verse 12, whatever could this mean? And I think that that's important, that messages answer the questions that are on the minds of people Unfortunately, there is a lot of preaching today that's so totally irrelevant to anything. And you go in and you say, well, thanks for the information. I already didn't need it, and I didn't understand it after I got it. But Peter here was addressing the question, whatever could this mean? And the answer is, verse 16, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. More literally, in the Old King James, it says, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he begins to give them a scriptural basis, you see, for the phenomena that they have just observed. And that is really important. You are always on dangerous ground when you are seeking spiritual phenomena for which there is no scriptural basis. Because whenever you get into the area of spiritual phenomena, people are always going to ask questions. They're always going to say, what does this mean? I mean, What is this? What is going on here? And if you are practicing some kind of spiritual phenomena for which you cannot give a solid scriptural basis, then that means you have gone outside the parameters of scripture. And it is very irresponsible to do that. It is irresponsible for televangelists or pastors or churches or whoever to promote spiritual phenomena without scriptural foundation. The things that go on in the church should always have scriptural explanations behind them. But for some people, they end up basing their church behavior upon experiences and not upon the Word of God. Did you know that that's what the cults do? Take the Mormon church, for example. They will send their representatives to your door and ask you to believe them based on an experience upon a quote-unquote burning of the bosom, as they put it, you're supposed to get from reading the Book of Mormon. No. God wants you to judge the truth of what they say, not based upon some experience, but based upon God's Word. Listen. What makes for solid doctrine and good church practice are those things which, first of all, we see in the Gospels, secondly, which continue in the Book of Acts, and thirdly, are taught in the Epistles. Anything else throws the door wide open to Shirley MacLaine or Joseph Smith and anyone else who claims to have had his or her own special encounter with God. Listen, we ought to have a scriptural basis for everything we do. I'm not interested in any practice that doesn't have a biblical foundation. There are many practices today in the church that have no scriptural foundation, and it is wrong. Do you know what God wants us to do? God wants us to learn to discern. How do we do it? Read the Bible. I mean, read it every day. And the more you read it, the more your blood will become bibline. You will just flow with the truth. And really, that's the best way. You can study the cults. But let me tell you, the best way to study the cults is to study the truth. Because the more you study the truth... The more you will know the truth, and when you know the truth, you will know then what is counterfeit. When you work at a bank, if you are a teller, they will make you study $20 bills over and over and over again, so you will know what is real. So when somebody passes a counterfeit in front of you, you say, hey, that's fake. Well, how do you know? Because you have been studying the real one for a long time. Peter says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So in the midst of this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, amidst signs and wonders and speaking in tongues, what does Peter do? Essentially, he says, let's have a Bible study. Interesting. And this did not quench the Spirit. Actually, it fulfilled what the Holy Spirit wanted to do. All the other things were merely preparatory to this. Unfortunately, Many people set the word against the Spirit. They can almost think it's more spiritual if there is no Bible study. Sadly, this is often due to the weak and unspiritual teaching of those who teach the Bible. Peter said, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Peter was an incredible expositor. Quoting from the Psalms in Acts 1 and from Joel in chapter 2, and then he's going to quote from other Psalms as well. You see, the fisherman became a scholar by hanging out with Jesus. And if you want to be one who is used by God, be like Peter. Just hang out with Jesus and his word, and inevitably you will get a firm grasp on the word of God. So Peter is now going to quote an entire paragraph from Joel 2, verses 28 through 32. And he begins with verse 17 here. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. The term last days is a technical term. When did the last days begin? Two thousand years ago. People ask the question, well, is it safe to say that we are in the last days? Oh, yes, it is. We are in, no doubt, the last of the last days. We are in the latter times of the last days. But the last days began almost 2,000 years ago. We know that because of what it says in Hebrews one. 1. Listen to it. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, now watch, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So the last days is a period of time beginning with Jesus Christ and will end with his coming again. So verse 17 says, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. In using the quotation from Joel, Peter explains what these onlookers have seen, the Holy Spirit poured forth upon the people. You see, before, in the Old Testament times, the Holy Spirit was given in drops, as it were, and now it is poured forth. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. Peter announces that the time has come when God would pour out his spirit upon all flesh, both Jews and Gentiles alike. And not only all people everywhere, but all kinds of people, young men, young women, male, female. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions. Do you notice the emphasis upon young here, the emphasis upon the youth? God is saying that in this age of the spirit, which is still this age, leadership, leadership, effectiveness and power will not be limited to the older generation, but also young men and young women will speak and they will lead. And you see, and that is what we are saying here and now. It is so exciting to see so many young people get turned on and get lit on fire by the Lord. You see, that's what makes a church so vibrant and so alive. Now, notice that in context here, this promise was for the last days, and Joel actually carries it right up to the second coming of Jesus Christ, through the great tribulation period into the second coming. Verse 19, And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day Of the Lord. So, the empowering of the Holy Spirit was not limited to just a short period of church history, but is to continue throughout church history right into the coming again of Jesus Christ, the great and the awesome day of the Lord. Now, even though Peter is applying this prophecy on that day to the day of Pentecost, he isn't implying that this is the complete fulfillment since the sun isn't being darkened and the moon isn't being turned into blood. So the scope of this prophecy is far broader than the experience that they have just witnessed. Pentecost was not the complete fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. It was only a sneak preview of coming attractions. In the book of Revelation is where we see the rest of this prophecy being fulfilled. Revelation 6.12, listen. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold... There was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. That is yet future. Verse 21. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter says that this outpouring of the Holy Spirit means that God is offering salvation in a way previously unknown. Whoever. Jew and Gentile, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation by faith. Now, many people would think that it would be enough for Peter to stop after this quotation from Joel. I mean, think of what we have in it. An outpouring of the Holy Spirit, miraculous dreams, visions, prophecy, signs and wonders regarding the day of the Lord, and an invitation to call on the name of the Lord. But it isn't enough, because Peter hasn't spoken about the saving work of Jesus on our behalf. I mean, everything until now has just been intro. This is just Peter's introduction, and now comes the essential message. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. It's like he's starting all over again. Back in verse 14, he said, let this be known to you and heed my words. And now here again, he's saying, hear these words. You see, Peter wanted people to pay attention, and he spoke as if he had something important to say, something many teachers fail to do. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. He identifies who he's talking about because there were many who had that name, Yahshua, Joshua. In fact, it was probably the most popular name. And so he is Yahshua, Jesus of Nazareth, so that they know exactly who he's talking about. And now Peter is going to give three proofs that Jesus is the Messiah and the Lord. Proof number one, his works and his miracles. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Now notice that Peter refers to what these people already knew about Jesus. They already knew all of these things. I mean, they already knew of his life and the working of miracles. And when we speak to people about Jesus, that's a good idea. That's a good place to start. Not speaking to them about the things they don't know, but starting with what they already know about him. Verse 23. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified... And put to death. The death of Jesus Christ was not a surprise to God. It was the plan of God. Jesus offered himself up. It was all part of the plan of God. God sent his Son into the world to die for sins. And Peter says he was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. But notice the next part. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. See, Peter didn't flinch at saying, You crucified this man who was sent by God. His first concern was not to please his audience, but it was to speak the truth. But notice this. Delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. Now this is an interesting mix of the divine standpoint and the human standpoint, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. He's saying, you know what? It was God's plan all along that his son should die for your sins, but he died at your hands and you're responsible. It's an interesting mixture. God is sovereign. God has a purpose, a plan, but there is that human responsibility. And because of this, there are arguments all the time, debates all the time. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man and Calvinism and Arminianism. And and there is this arguing, this bantering back and forth. Both are true. They are truths that are held in tension. God planned it, but it does not take away the responsibility from man. It's like a suspension bridge. What keeps a suspension bridge suspended? It's tension, things pulling in the opposite direction. Now, what if you say, well, I don't like the tension. I'm going to cut one of those. I I don't like that force. I'm going to cut. What's going to happen? It will collapse. And so you that are sovereignty, sovereignty of God, you are out of balance without the responsibility of man. You that are all just the responsibility of man, there's no sovereignty or plan of God, you are out of balance as well. There is a plan, purpose, foreknowledge of God set in advance and the responsibility of man. A great example of this, of course, is Judas. Jesus said concerning Judas that it was prophesied that the Son of Man would be betrayed. It's the plan of God that he should be betrayed, but woe to the one who betrays him. Jesus said it would be better if that man had never been born. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. It is an endless argument which we will never be able to fully figure out. All I know is this, God is sovereign, yet man is responsible. God's will is worked out, yet man is held accountable. In the words of J.B. Phillips, if God was small enough for us to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough for us to worship. Well, now Peter gives us the second proof that Jesus is the Messiah and the Lord, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 24, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now, the term pains of death, the word pains is actually the word for birth pains. So in this sense, the tomb was a womb for Jesus. Jesus. You see, it was not possible that the chosen one of God could remain in the grip of death. You see, that couldn't happen. The Redeemer could not be held any more than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. When it comes time, it comes time. Well, he quotes now Psalm 16 in verse 25. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that i may not be shaken therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad moreover my flesh also will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in hades nor will you allow your holy one to see corruption you have made known to me the ways of life you will make me full of joy in your presence so peter tells us that psalm 16 verses 6 through 11 is prophetic that it applies to the messiah And, you know, Jesus probably taught Peter this himself when he instructed the disciples in the scriptures in Luke chapter 24 after his resurrection. Now, although Jesus bore the full wrath of God on the cross, as if he were a guilty sinner, guilty of all our sin, even being made sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, even that act was an act of holy, giving love for us. So that Jesus himself did not become a sinner even though he bore the full guilt of sin. This is the gospel message, that Jesus took our punishment for sin on the cross and remained a perfect Savior through the whole ordeal, proved by the resurrection. For this reason, he remained the Holy One even in his death, and it was incomprehensible that God's only Son, God's Holy One, should be bound by death. So the resurrection was absolutely inevitable. Verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, Spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So Peter says, Hey guys, look, here's David's tomb. You know David died. You know he's buried. You know that he's here in the grave. David couldn't have been speaking about himself. He had to be speaking about the greater Son of David, the fruit of his body, Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead. Verse 32 This Jesus. God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Now, interestingly, this is the second time that Peter has said this. Back in verse 24, he said, God raised him up. And the remarkable thing is, is that not one voice is lifted in protest in this whole crowd. And that is one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection of Jesus right here that this man, Peter, could stand up in the city where these events had taken place a little more than a month earlier and tell these people that Jesus had risen from the dead and not one voice challenges him. I mean, they could go out to the tomb and they could see that the tomb was empty. They knew that the authorities could not produce the body of Jesus, though they would have given a king's ransom to have done so. And they had heard of all of the rumors that spread through the city that Jesus was alive and that he was appearing to his own disciples. And there is not one voice who challenges what Peter says. Instead, they stand there in mute and stricken silence as the apostle Peter drives home with powerful blows the sword of the Spirit, convicting them on the truth of his claim. Well, now Peter comes to the third validation, the third proof that Jesus is the Messiah and the Lord. And that is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So there's the works of Christ, there's the resurrection of Christ, and now the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Verse 33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. In other words, they were looking, they had seen the tongues of fire which danced on the heads of the believers. And they heard the sound as if a mighty rushing wind, and they had heard the utterance of these strange languages. These things, Peter says, are proof that Jesus of Nazareth is Lord and Christ. And now Peter quotes one more time from David to give a scriptural reason why Jesus ascended into heaven. And in doing so, he quotes from one of Jesus' favorite psalms, Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus used that same psalm to confound the Pharisees in Matthew 22, and it is a passage known by all as one describing the Messiah. Verse 34 For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Literally, a footstool under your feet. In the Eastern cultures, putting your foot on something was a way of proclaiming your victory over them. So Peter is pointing out that there had to be a time when the Messiah would be sitting in heaven at God's right hand, waiting for the time when his enemies would be conquered. Jesus had to ascend into heaven. And then Peter goes on, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and and Christ. And this is where Christianity rests its case. Jesus is Lord, whether men know it or not. The very forces which control their lives are totally dependent upon him. Lord means ruler over all things, king over all men, the one who holds the key to life and death, heaven and hell in his hands. All power in heaven and in earth is committed unto him, and there is no authority or power that exists which does not take its direction and its limitation from him. He is Lord over all things. Christ, of course, means Messiah. We say the words Jesus Christ, and many of us have a tendency to think that Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last, but that is not the case. Jesus is his name, Christ is, is his title. Christ means Messiah, the promised one, the deliverer, the only hope that mankind has ever had. And the Bible tells us that there is coming a day, Philippians chapter 2, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And so Peter is laying it out straight on the line to them. He says, this Jesus, you better know, that God has made him both the Lord and he is the Messiah. You see, there is no way that you can avoid him. Your very life is dependent upon him. He is Lord over all things. And sooner or later, you have to deal with Jesus Christ, whether you like it or not. And now verse 37. And Peter hasn't even finished his sermon yet. It says, Now when they heard this, They were cut to the heart. See, this is conviction. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? You see, the full force of Peter's arguments thundered home to them, and they realized that they were in a very precarious position. This one, whom he had proven by indisputable evidence to be Lord, was the one they had crucified 50 days earlier. I mean, can you imagine how they felt? think of how they must have felt when they heard these things. I like the way Stedman puts it. He says that it would be very much as if you went down to apply for a job, and on the way you got into an automobile accident. And when the other driver got out, you started beating him and cursing him and kicking him, and you left him laying in the street. And then you got in your car and you drove off. You went to apply for this job. And when you were all cleaned up and ready... Then they ushered you into the presence of the man that you had just beaten and kicked and cursed and left in the street. That is something of what these people must have felt. No wonder they were cut to the heart and cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter's answer is wonderful. It is marvelous. But you'll have to wait for next time to find out. Let me close with this. Look at verse 36 again. It says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Who is responsible for the crucifixion? Here, Peter is talking to the men of Israel. So some will lay the responsibility at the foot of the Jewish nation. But then Pontius Pilate and the Romans were also in charge of putting him on the cross. After all, Pilate was the one who gave the edict. He gave the order. So some say that the Romans are responsible. Do you know who is responsible? All of us. Your sin and my sin put him on the cross as well. So before we point to some people group or historical figure, we have to put ourselves to blame as well. Out of his great love, he died for our sins. Romans 5, 8, But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't the nails that held him on the cross. It was love. His love for you and his love for me that held him there. Oh, how Jesus loves you. We hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen. Thanks again for listening, and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gib teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's Way.